0: Will Hines caught the improv bug when he began studying and performing at the Upright Citizen Brigade in nineteen ninety nine in New York City. He's gone on to become one of the most respected and experienced improv instructors with the UCB in both New York and LA, as well as working with corporate clients, and he turned his Tumblr, Improv Nonsense, into a book, How to Be the Greatest Improviser on Earth. His screen credits included a recurring role on Brooklyn Nine Nine as DA Carl Kerr, plus appearances on Keenan, Broad City, Search Party, Inside Amy Schumer unbreakable kimmy schmidt adam ruins everything crazy girlfriend community as well as sketches with conan jimmy Kimmel live funny or die college humor and above average will caught up with me during his return in new york city for the north coast comedy festival where he both performed stand-up and taught an improv workshop if you like this conversation please consider subscribing to my sub stack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! My real question for you, Will Hines. What would the UConn student version of Will <laughs> Hines think of this version of you in your fifties doing stand up and teaching
1: improv? Oh yeah, man. What a nice question. I think he'd be really impressed and happy to see it. Probably also terrified for me (laughs) because I was so far away from it. When I was in college, I was basically like a journalist and I mean, I was a journalism student and like very scared of that. I mean, in college I jumped around. I was like a chemical engineering major and an economics major and a math education major. And then I, backed into journalism in my senior year uh, because I was interested in it, but also just my, my credits kind of added up that way. And so I was very directionless. So to see that I had gone any kind of performing route would have shocked me. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I didn't get on stage until I was 30. So when I graduated UConn, I was still nine years away from stepping on stage. Right. Yeah. It's, It's, I mean, I'm sad as a journalist that we lost you. The comedy,
0: but but seeing seeing what you've done in the last twenty years, I'm I'm grateful that you you chose comedy. I was adding nothing. So <laughs> who who started improv first, you or your brother? Me.
1: Um, uh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I started first. Um. Yeah, my brothers. I was the oldest, so they they would sort of they would kind of copy me. A lot, I think. Mm-hmm. And then kind of vary it up from there. Um, also, our, our, mother, our mother died. I have two younger brothers. Our mother died when we were kids, or I was 16. They were 11 and 9. And I, we, we got very tight because of that. And so I do think when – I think they imprinted on me more than younger brothers imprint on older brothers, usually. Like, I'm a huge Beatles fan. They're Beatles I'm a Red Sox fan, even though we were in Yankees territory. They sort of copied that. And I mean, they're, they're quite different than me now. But I do think when they were younger, they sort of copied me and then made variations as needed. So did they also take to either journalism or computer programming? Or My next youngest brother, Kevin, I mean, in fact, when, I, when he first moved to New York City, I got him a job at my company. Um, he got out at my company. He came to my improv theater and took classes, and then eventually took my job at the improv theater. <laughs> so he's done the best job of of being imprinted. Yes, yes. I mean, they're all so quite quite different now, but I want that credit because sometimes they get grouchy with me, and I'm kind of like, "Hey, jerks! <laughs> <laughs> I did this. Yeah, you like you 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 came along uh, behind me, which I <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm grateful for it too. I really like that we have shared experience, but as I get older, sometimes I want credit. I'm surprised to find the things I want credit for. Um, I don't necessarily want more career success, but I want my brothers to acknowledge that they've copied me <laughs> when, when we were younger, at least. Well, isn't
0: that always the way it is with pioneers? You yeah, want right. to be, you. I, I, oh, I knocked the door down so you could follow me. That's right. That's right. Well, take me back to that, that moment. Then I guess it what was it like then for you in New York City in, let's say, nineteen ninety eight or early nineteen ninety
1: nine? Yeah, what um, what was your life like then? So yeah, I was a computer programmer and at a at a five person company, and we did like consulting for big financial firms like Goldman Sachs and just like investment companies. You know, we would go into these companies and like write little their intranet things little Mm -hmm. utilities the web was sort of new still in the middle of the silicon alley boom so there was lots of computer programming work Um, and i had lived in new york city for a couple years and i was quite lonely i didn't like know a lot of people in new york i felt extremely behind and i just didn't have much of a life uh, or direction and i kind of uh aimlessly just started doing funny things. I started going to open mics and telling jokes very timidly, auditing improv classes. And I was honestly just, like, bored. I just wanted creative things in my life, and I wasn't, like, sure how to do it. Um, and so I kind of bumped around. A variety of things. And I would I would look in like new the New York Press and the Village Voice and see what like shows were listed in the comedy section and just kind of try them, whether it was a stand-up show or some kind of weird off off Broadway thing in the lower east side at the collective unconscious stage. That was the name of a the stage there down on Ludlow. And then um the and I was doing stand-up, but when I took an improv class at the then brand new UCB theater. Um, I really enjoyed it. I just, I really liked the whole group hug, you are important aspect of improv. Um, and I felt like it was really like good for my personality. I felt like it was sort of like making me work an emotional muscle that had atrophied, um, the whole, the whole acting part of improv, like speak to the most important thing, get to the heart of the matter, be affected, be vulnerable. It felt, felt like kind of good advice.
0: What was, um, what was that impulse, though, in you that made you even seek out comedy
1: in the first place? Oh, man. Because that I, boredom I, uh, could have
0: expressed in very different ways. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I love that question. Um, my family had been funny. My mother, who I mentioned before, had died when I was 16. She was quite funny. And her sisters, my aunts, just like being funny was a, just an a important so like the way everybody communicated and, and weirdly like being obsessed with comedy culture, like tracking who was on SNL. Certainly mm. our family was not alone in that, but that was like, <laughs> we weren't like a sports family. We were sort of like, who's on SNL this season family. And what is Steve Martin doing? And, you know, do we like this Eddie Murphy special? I'm talking about stuff happening in the late eighties. Um, that was a kind of part of the culture. So then when I got a computer programming job, I'm, there, nobody was funny like everybody was so dry and factual and like efficient that I just kind of missed it um so I, I think I was just looking for my family again a little bit and my, my younger brothers too even though um they were they were a lot younger than me when we were kids by the time I was in my 20s I would meet I would see them and be like yes these guys get it like they're quirky and strange and Canadian we are we have Canadian heritage and so I um just culturally missed missed people who liked being funny as part of their identity. Uh, again, I really think it was more of a social urge. And so yeah, it was it was missing my mom and her sisters. I think that drove me that way.
0: And it was the upright citizens' brigade that made you feel that sense of community and home.
1: Right. Yeah. Like the very first class I took, a level one. I mean, I I started going to their shows before they had a theater when they were doing things at this place called solo arts on 18th street. And, you know, shows were being listed in the New York press. And I don't remember how I heard about it, but I, I was going to do enough comedy shows that I would just sort of catch wind of other stuff. So I, I was seeing UCB shows early. And then after like, you know, actually what happened was somebody broke up with me. I was dating somebody and she dumped me. And when I was 29 and I was like, well, I need, to keep myself busy so I took an improv class at UCB uh, to fill my time and my first class was Monday night taught by Kevin Mullaney and after the very first class which was from 7 to 10 somebody was like let's go to McManus which ended up being like the sort of unofficial pub of the UCB Uh, and we all went out and stayed out for like three hours and that's what hooked me just like oh people want to hang out and then people were like some people were like, oh, we're going to go see a show Thursday night or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'll be there. And it was like, I mean, I had nothing but time. So I just started going to the UCB always. Who was your first UCB friend? Uh, Mitch McGee. His name is Mitch McGee. I'm still friends with him. We're friends in LA. We both live there. Um, I just went for a walk with him a couple of weeks ago. Mitch, um, was,
0: Mitch was an early uh, internet video
1: guy. That's the yeah, act that I recall. That was he's? A, I think he's a brilliant director, and he did a lot of really artsy, weirdo, funny uh, v- videos online as part of the Channel One Hundred and One community in New York. Um, that was that and, was and, and, and that,
0: Channel One Hundred and One. That was the thing that um, Dan Harmon. Dan Harmon.
1: Dan. Yeah. yeah Dan Harmon and Rob Straub started Channel 101 in LA in LA is really where it is and it's like an institution and a phenomenon where it'd be a monthly video series and before YouTube rose to prominence it was especially big and then in New York we copied it and did our own little bastard version of it uh, and Mitch was like kind of a king of that New York colony um, yeah by the, was, by, the really-
0: by the time I moved to New York City and started what year going- was that? what's that what year was that 2007 Hmm. so by the time i moved to new york city in 2007 and started uh, attending ucb shows in person you were already part of the stepfathers
1: oh okay yeah i probably had just joined okay yeah so what was your
0: and the stepfathers were like this big yeah big team big team what so what was your experience like for those first seven years was it a slog trying to get on a herald team or was that Early enough yeah. in the UCB years that it, that wasn't quite
1: established yet as a yeah. When I got I got on a Herald team pretty early. It wasn't as hard when I got on as it would become. Mm-hmm. Um, although yes, so like I started classes in in '99 and I got on a team at the end of 2000, which is pretty fast. Uh, and that speaks more to that there was less people there rather than me being good. Um, <laughs> well, I
0: didn't <laughs> have the a fr- the theater didn't have a
1: reputation yet. Oh, yeah. Nobody was at shows. Like, Harold Knight was half full at best. And um, ASCAP but But oh, almost nothing else would mm-hmm. uh, in my memory. And it was really hit or miss whether there'd be any crowd there. Uh, which stunned me because in those early days of ECB, and I'm talking like 1999, 2000, 2001, You know, there'd be like, I mean, it was very hit or miss. You could go to the UCB and see a very amateurish show from someone who hadn't done that much. You could also see like Tina Fey trying out stuff. This is before she was like on camera. So she wasn't like famous, but she'd be introduced as the head writer of SNL. So (laughs) even if you had never heard of her, you'd be like, Jesus, that's some that's a pretty good bona fide right there. Right. And, you know, or Todd Berry, I remember, did a show called Icky that Matt Besser directed like. And Todd Berry was a very established stand-up already and super funny. Um, I mean, if you were a comedy fan, you know, these shows were five bucks or or free. So you could go to Gotham Comedy Club and pay like $10 for a ticket and $8 each for two drinks to watch 10 stand-ups talk about how everything sucked. (laughs) Or you could pay $5 at UCB, roll the dice, and more than half the time you'd see somebody incredible. To me, it was like this really amazing hidden kingdom. And I couldn't believe that like, it was, wasn't more popular. I mean, it would become more popular, but in these early days, like nobody was there and I was stunned. I would bring like my normal friends, my quote unquote normal from computer programming friends from high school who visited, I'd be like, you got to come to ECB. And half the time they'd be like, eh, I didn't like, I don't know. I think they, they didn't like it. And I think they were sort of like, their impression was affected by just how dingy the theater was and sort of like how unprofessional the box office was. And I'd be like, yeah, but it was like Adam McKay was doing improv. Be like who's Adam McKay? I'd be like, you know, he's a writer for SNL and he's funny. And they'd be like, well, I hated it. And <laughs> he's a know. future Oscar winner. You know? Yeah. Nobody gave a shit. And I was like, I think I'm right. I think this place is Motown. <laughs> in 1961, in terms of, like, burgeoning talent that the nation had yet to discover. And, um, I don't know, I think I was right. You were right. Well, that's one of the things I I
0: loved. You have this website that's I had to dig around a little bit to get there.
1: Oh, Improv Nonsense?
0: No, yeah. it's a link from there that has videos that you've compiled. Oh, okay, yeah. And one of them, I had no idea that... This existed, or that you were part of it. You have up there a video that you shot of Amy Winehouse. Oh yeah, right. And it reminds me very much of what you were just saying about UCB before it became huge. You're shooting this video of Amy Winehouse at AOL. AOL. That's, yeah, I for, for those nice. of you who are old, used to be the internet company. <laughs> uh, right. So right.
1: you're at you're working at AOL. You're shooting video of this young singer who you do not know. I did not know her. Yeah, In January of 2006 or something like that. Or, um, yeah, I worked at AOL as a video producer, um, which really just meant I was like, I it was it was a really like menial job, but really good experience. Like, I had to just like hold cameras and you know coil up cables and then like do sort of fussy file management things um, that required some technical know-how, but mostly just being comfortable learning stuff as you went in a sort of digital, Hmm. digital film environment. Um, And one, and there was AOL music was a department where they would have different artists come in and perform and they would put the video on AOL And so Amy Winehouse is there, but like she, her songs were not yet big in America. Like I think they were about to be released. I definitely had never heard of her and they were like, go film this British girl. You know, we're recording her audio for a podcast, but we might as well grab some video. And so I went down there with a camera and I didn't know how to work it. I didn't have the, if I had hit, if I had set the exposure to auto and the, and done the white balance correctly, that video would be so much better quality, but I didn't know. I just pointed the camera at her, hit record. She opened up her mouth and started singing. And I was like, oh my, who is this? This person's incredible. <laughs> you know, they released the video. And then like, I think like four months later, she was like a huge star in, in America. I mean, I met her technically. You know how dumb it was. Like she finished two of her so- how dumb I was. She finished two of her songs. I put the camera down. And I was like, oh my God, you're great. She would like, thanks, love. <laughs> I was like, what an idiot I sounded like. I think she knew she was great. She didn't need Will Hines. <laughs> telling her she was great you know
0: but But i was so blown
1: away i just fell out of my mouth right but actually she did because
0: just like you and your friends at the ucb you needed people to understand the greatness that was there
1: i think so we i didn't meet beyonce but i was in the room with beyonce when she sang stuff and um it was really fun there's a lot of cool folks came through there
0: but but just like that a lot of cool folks came through ucb what was, it like uh, for, what was it like from your perspective to, to see people come in alongside you who, were, who nobody knew and then see them become superstars? I
1: mean, it's, it's mostly exciting. Like, what that question reminds me of is, you know, I would see friends of mine who I thought were amazing and they would do stuff in obscurity for a while and then sort of explode... It felt validating. It felt like, oh, we were right. This person is great. Um, You know, the Stepfathers, the team you mentioned that I got on in 2007, uh, Zach Woods and Bobby Moynihan were on that team when I joined. Bobby got SNL pretty, like, a year after that, I think. And Zach started doing stuff on The Office not too long after that and then became a lot more famous. And it was validating because we knew that Bobby and... Zach were terrific. Um, we knew they were great. So when, when Hollywood caught up, it just feels like, oh, yeah, we're, we're not idiots. We have good taste in people. Um, I, I always felt like I was a bass player in a lot of great bands, you know. And so the lead singers would go and be famous. And I'd be like, yeah, I played bass. I played bass for that guy. Um, I kind of feel like a comedy session musician in a lot of ways. Oh, comedy session,
0: not the Paul McCartney. i mean as as a beatles guy i I, I thought you would have like you
1: know i'm the bass player i'm I'm the paul mccartney i'm the paul (laughs) i can't imagine having enough self-esteem to be like i see myself as the paul mccartney in this group (laughs) i think i am as valuable to this group as paul mccartney was to the beatles i can't imagine well i
0: you know i spoke with chris gethard You're a long time pal. I spoke with him way back when he did that movie, uh, Mike Birbiglia's Don't Think Twice. Yeah. Which kind of deals with a lot of the same, or deals with this this concept of you're on a team and then you see people become stars in front of your eyes.
1: Yeah. Um, I love Birbiglia and I think he's a genius and I love that he made that movie. And there are certain aspects of him that he caught well, but I don't think that the faint jealousy was accurate. To me, to me, the premise of "Don't Think Twice" is what a stand-up comedian thinks the improv world is like, where everybody is just jealous of each other. Ah. Because I was on teams where some that 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 movie is about an improv team where somebody gets on SNL and becomes famous, and it like rips the team apart. But I was on the Stepfathers. Bobby Moynihan got SNL. We were incredibly psyched for Bobby. It meant it meant we were good. You know, we all gathered around to watch, you know, first show and we were thrilled. Uh and that really never changed, you know, like um I I I always felt like I still I still get excited when I when I see my friends do do stuff. Um I mean I'm I have I have jealousy and insecurities also, but they're they're not they're, they're not shaped. Like I feel weirdly soothed when friends of mine get famous. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll get something, you know, I'm standing right next to this guy. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I have gotten some success. Also, my expectations for myself were so low. Like when I started doing improv, I was, it was beyond me that I would even be able to be good in a class. Um, So that I, that I was able to hold people's attention on a stage. You know, it, I was playing with house money already by the time Bobby got us L.
0: Wait, so are, were you dealing with any sort of self
1: esteem issues then, or ego, yes. or time still? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I definitely have had confidence issues, and I still do. Um, I mean, I have a weird combination of confidence issues, but also a willingness to just. Fling myself into situations that I don't feel prepared for. So I sort of have audacity and confidence issues. Like this is going to, this is going to fail, but I will do it anyway. uh, Is maybe a weird combination that I possess. So
0: how did you talk yourself into eventually making the move to LA? I
1: mean, uh, it was all just later than you should do it. Right. Like I moved to LA when I was, 43 to you know I basically started becoming a professional actor when I was 43 like that's not really the ideal age to go to Hollywood you know that's (laughs) not the vision that's not the biography that people picture for themselves when they imagine hitting it big in Hollywood you know they're like well I'll wait till I'm 43 I'll move there you know I started taking improv classes when I was 29 you know first started writing sketch shows when I was in my mid thirties, I always felt extremely old relative to the very young culture at UCB, And so I had to wrestle with always feeling behind, which I then realized that everybody feels behind. Even the 25 year olds, they feel behind. They feel late, That's I know, which, which is crazy, but they do like, they look at like Lena Dunham or I, I don't know, you know, someone who's like making um, like the, they just announced new SNL writers and three of them are a sketch team and they're all in their early 20s and they're writing for SNL I mean I know two of them are children of SNL writers <laughs> but, so obviously <laughs> episodes, but they also are good you know and like <laughs> and you if you're 26 and you're doing sketch in New York City you look at them and you are behind right um, so I kind of realized that even though I felt behind and I was behind that nursing that insecurity was pointless i i also realized that one of the one of the is just to outlast everybody just like don't quit so many people quit like your greatest competition will just give up if you wait a year you know i remember people in 2000 at ucb taking classes of being like well when do i get something those people all left you know
0: and here you are 20 years later
1: yeah, just wait another 20 years, baby. <laughs> get a half-hour stand-up set on that very stage. <laughs> I really just started pursuing I just started pursuing stand-up like 2 years ago in LA. Really just to try to get cast more. I was like I think if I'm on stage in front of more people I'll get cast. If I can like present my persona to more and more crowds. Wow, even even though you already had a recurring character on a
0: network sitcom in brooklyn 99 well yeah
1: because like that character really he's got four appearances over seven years that's Mm -hmm. not really recurring right like well um, (laughs) i I don't make i don't support myself with acting money there Mm -hmm. there have been a couple of years where i have but mostly i don't so i always I, i feel funnier than my than the prominence of my acting career so i was like well maybe if i Show people what I think my energy is; they'll put me in stuff. Mm. I think most people get into stand-up to be like writers and, you know, joke writers. I'm not a good enough joke writer; I'm too lazy. But I, um, I kind of use stand-up to present my personality. Right, but you know, I I do write jokes and and do bits in it, but, but I don't think anybody would watch my stand-up show. And be like, hire the guy to be a writer, but they might be like hire that guy to be the sad teacher in our sitcom.
0: <laughs> uh, although you could do a great job as the sad teacher in our sitcom.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down for it.
0: Um, but as you told me just earlier in this podcast, it's, it's not as if when you started taking classes and going to open mics, you did it with any grand ambitions. You were just bored with life as a computer programmer. Correct. It wasn't. You weren't going into it like those kids
1: who that that's true who do the that's Harvard Lampoon
0: wasn't. and are like, I'm going to do the Harvard Lampoon and then I'm going to get on the Simpsons and then I'm going to do this by the time I'm 26. Yeah.
1: Um, I kind of wish I had. I would have <laughs> done better professionally. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't have the vision of what that life would be like. I, I wasn't. If you know, if when I was 28 and I was doing open mics in New York, not, not for too long, not too many, but a little bit, and you were like, hey, do you want to be on television? I would have been like, how does that even happen? I don't even see how that happens. And if you can't like visualize it, it's hard to do it. Um, I was like, who, does somebody come to an open mic and cast you? Like, how does it even occur? Uh, and you know, 10 years later, I'd be like, oh, you have to like, do a lot of comedy, and then you have a lot of friends, and then one of them becomes successful, and they recommend you, and then you get to submit, and that's how it happens. So you have to like make a hundred friends who are all trying to do it. But I didn't know that. Even even when I started UCB, it was just like I was inter- I I was just interested in like healing myself emotionally. Um, I mean it's kind of boring and emo, but like my my inner <laughs> like struggle is like an emotional journey, not like a professional one. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was a super shy, unconfident kid. My mother died. My dad kind of retreated into a corner and stayed quietly drunk for 15 years. Sweet guy, but like not engaged. Me and my brothers were just sort of bored and alone. And doing everything after that was just trying to heal myself, just trying to make connections and be happy and be present and you know, my mother died when she was 40. So I was like, maybe I don't, how long am I going to live? Like, I don't want to, like, yeah. When I was 30 and I started doing stand up, I was like, maybe I'll be dead in 10 years, like her. You know, maybe I'll get cancer when I'm 37 and that's it. So do I want to be in a cubicle? It was like movies. It was like, I want to be happy today. And if I walked to ECB in level one, took that class, we went to McManus, I'd be like, today was the, what a great day. I got to have more days like this. And then within that, I'd be like, oh, I want to have a better time when I'm in class. How can I get better at class? And then I got put on a team and I'd be like, oh, I'd like to be better on this team. How do I get better on this team? Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll take this acting class. Maybe I'll go watch this show. And so I I wasn't ever really good at looking forward. I I didn't know how to visualize next steps. And I really still maybe don't too much. Um, well, well that, leads me,
0: that leads me into asking about the book, because your your improv book, uh, How to Be the Greatest Improviser on Earth, started as a Tumblr. Yeah. So right. when you started the Tumblr,
1: were you thinking at that point about? No, I started the Tumblr because I was working for the ECB, running the school, sitting in the office, and I would hear people say opinions about improv in my classes or in the office. And I'd be, I would disagree with them and I wanted to argue with them. So I started an improv blog to express my opinions because it felt like the polite way to do that. Like that way people could read them if they wanted or ignore them. I wasn't like obnoxiously being like, (laughs) listen to me. And then it got popular. I got like 20,000 people subscribed to it way more than I ever thought would happen. Um, at its peak. And then I started paying more attention to it. Then I saw the numbers start to drop a lot. Uh, And, you know, based on like how many people were liking it. And I was like, you know, this blog's on the way out. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to make a book to like, make it, make the good parts permanent. Um, And so then I started doing that. Also, I had just moved to LA and I was, I had all kinds of time in my hands because it was the first time in my life I didn't have a full-time job. So I just had time and I did that to keep busy. And now you have the book. Now and I have the, the book, book, yeah. And the book
0: stands as a, in a, in a dialogue with the UCB book, right? Um,
1: people, <laughs> people see it that way. My, the book is actually pretty unfocused. Like I think I, I really do like my book and there's things in the book I like a lot, but there is no grand thesis of my book. People are like, what is it, what's it about? I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's, it's a hodgepodge of advice about doing improv. Mm. I, I think my, my, the book is pretty successful within the tiny, tiny world of improv books. And I, and I say that that is 75% because of the, the title, How to Be the Greatest Improviser on Earth. Is, uh, <laughs> if you're going to write a book, Sean, you're going to write a book, think, make sure that title is salty. <laughs> Uh, well, that's my advice because people people buy books because they identify with it. They don't, they don't buy them to read them. They buy it because they're like this book is me.
0: Well, since you so, stopped doing
1: the podcast,
0: I will write your book. I appreciate this advice.
1: <laughs> Man, you really know your stuff. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, you spoke a little bit about like the, the inner dialogue with yourself and it reminds me that that's kind of like the workshop that you're giving while you're in town this weekend, right? There's the fool and there's the voice of reason.
1: Yeah. Um, Fool versus voice of reason. It's an improv workshop and it's like, it's about the two roles that you can play when you're doing improv scenes. You're either like a fool who's doing something foolish and funny, or you're a voice of reason who is saying that the fool is foolish, you know? You're either the emperor who wears no clothes or you're the kid who says, hey, you don't have any clothes on. Uh, and it's like uncomfortable with both of those jobs. How do
0: you feel about about those voices in your head when you're off stage?
1: Um, I mean, I do think, I think it applies to real life. Um, I think you have to be willing to be a fool sometimes and you have to be willing to be a voice of reason and not let either one of them rule too much, you know, if your voice of reason rules too much, you'll never do anything. And if the fool rules too much, then you're drunk at 4. A.M. Starting a fight with a barber. (laughs) Well, thank you, Will
0: Hines, for uh, not being drunk at 4. A.M. But instead doing a podcast with me early on a Saturday morning. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Which is what grown men
1: from generation X do (laughs) when, (laughs) when they become grown men. weren't we supposed to be the ones who generation X, we were supposed to like fix the baby boomers problems, right? The baby boomers were like all on drugs and divorced. And we were supposed to grow up and like be practical. I remember that was like one of the ways that, that there was like a lot of, this is what our generation in the early nineties. I remember being like, we're going to, we're not show offs like the baby boomers. We're going to get our hands dirty and solve problems. Now, now I guess we're just out of touch idiots. But when <laughs> we, we were young, that was that was going to be the identity of Gen X.
0: I kind of feel like we were both the fools and the voice of reason because we were telling the baby boomers that they had no clothes, but we also weren't doing anything about it.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, well, we wanted to, <laughs> um, but uh... that's why they called us slackers because we didn't. <laughs> oh that's right we were slackers yeah we, didn't... we dropped out that we were that was our protest you know we, we weren't gonna play the game that everybody else played right and and see how well that turned out everything worked that's what yeah. i remember everything got better <laughs> we, we fixed everything feeling <laughs> is great now yeah no problems especially not the wi-fi <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> well will I, I really appreciate uh you doing this with me especially early on a saturday morning Thank you for doing it early on a Saturday. I appreciate it. Yeah. Last first. This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post produced by Alex Verzell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening.